KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Imagine a job opportunity comes along. It's in your field, matches your skill set perfectly, and pays better than your current job. But you can't take it because you've signed a contract with a non-compete clause. Your employer doesn't want you running off with any special knowledge you've gained from them and taking it to a competitor. And in many cases, that makes sense. But is that fair to the worker? I think there's been a brewing discontent with non-competes for a while. The FTC has put forth a proposal to ban non-compete agreements, and the effects of that could reach further than you might think. The FTC has projected that if the rule goes into place, it would generate extra job opportunities for as many as 30 million workers and to increase wages by $300 billion. But not everyone thinks this is a good idea or even the correct legal process for a change like this. And we will certainly see pushback that the FTC has gone too far, that they don't have the authority to do this. Today on KYW News Radio in depth, we ask Natalie Peterson, Associate Professor of Legal Studies at Drexel's LeBeau College of Business, to help us understand what's going on here, how non competes work, what the FTC is proposing, and how much power the FTC really has. So, as a starting point, can you kind of just explain the FTC, what their responsibility is, and who they oversee? Yeah, I mean, so really the FCC, the Federal Trade Commission, is charged with um, protecting consumers and really the public from unfair competitive practices and also antitrust issues. Yeah, so they're really looking at ways to make sure that companies are competing fairly so that the consumer isn't um, impacted in a harmful way. So the focus of our conversation is the FTC working to put a rule in place that would basically outlaw non-competes. I think anybody in the media industry is very familiar with what a non-compete is, but could you overall kind of just set us up and explain the the logistics of how a non-compete works? Yeah. So a non-compete is a contractual clause generally between a worker and someone who employs them. Um, So it could be an employee and their employer. It could be an independent contractor or a volunteer um, that typically blocks that worker from working for a competing employer for a specified period of time and within a certain geographic scope after they've parted ways with the former employer. Um, So it's a contract that you sign and you basically say, once my employment here has ended, I can't work in a competing way for you. And that's sort of the key is what way are you able to work? What activities are restricted? But whatever the, the contract specifies, I can't do that for a certain time and within a certain geographic scope. And it's interesting because, as I mentioned, these are very prevalent in media, specifically, usually your bigger media markets, but not just necessarily. But in doing research for this, I was genuinely surprised kind of how far reaching these are. I mean, we're we're not talking we're talking millions of people that uh, operate under these. Am I correct? Yeah. So I think the FTC has estimated that about 20 percent of American workers are bound by non-competes. And I think that's where some of this impetus is coming from that potentially these have become too far reaching, right? That while it might make sense in certain industries or for certain, particularly certain levels of jobs, right? That it may not really make sense to be binding low wage workers who may not be really, you know, exposed to the types of information or training 
that are protected by non-competes to be to be restricting them in what they can do once they leave a job. The thinking behind a non-compete, and you kind of just referenced it, is basically to kind of protect secrets. Uh, I don't mean to make it sound like the CIA, but just how things work and how a company does business. And if you're if you go to a company in a similar in the same field in a similar area, in theory, you could you know, spill the beans about stuff. That's that's kind of the idea behind them, correct? Yeah. So there's a couple ideas. There's the protect trade secrets, definitely. Um, and so trade secrets are really anything that gives the company a competitive advantage from not being known by their competitors and that the company takes reasonable steps to, to protect, right? So things like putting a non-disclosure or a non-compete in place. Um, so they want to protect those things. They've put a lot of money into developing whatever those trade secrets are, and they don't want their employees then taking them to their competitors and using them, right? Um, so that's one one line of thinking behind non-competes, just to protect other types of maybe confidential information, customer lists that may not even rise to the level of a trade secret, um, customer goodwill, right? That you don't want employees taking customers with you, um, those types of things. And then in some ways to recoup training costs, right? That it, it costs a lot sometimes and we invest a lot in our workers, um, that employers invest a lot in their workers. And so they don't want them just leaving, you know, early and taking that training with them and benefiting a competitor. So all of those reasons um, are, are reasons that employers give for wanting to use non-competes. So let's talk about the rule that the FTC is trying to impose here. You know, basically, are they looking to eliminate them completely? Are there caveats? Are there certain areas? You know, what are they looking to do? It's a really broad ban that they that they're proposing to put in place. Um, Basically, it would say that that workers cannot be asked to enter into a non-compete clause by their employer. Um, that they can't maintain a worker with a non-compete clause, um, and they, they can't represent to a worker that they're going to be subject to a non-compete clause where the employer has no good faith basis to believe that the worker actually can be subject to a non-compete clause. So, you know, not only can't you enter into these non-compete clauses with a very broad class of workers, um, but you can't even sort of allude to the fact of a non-compete, which I think is it's fair. Um, and we can talk, you know, maybe more about the, the fairness and the fear aspect of non-competes, but a very broad ban on non-competes um, with very few exceptions. So there are exceptions for banks and I think savings and loans and federal credit unions um, and air carriers and common carriers, but it really would cover the vast majority of workers if this goes into place. Um, And not only would it cover the vast majority of workers from being asked to sign a non-compete, but if this particular rule in its current form were to go into place, any employers that use non-competes or have used non-competes would be required to rescind ones that are in place right now with workers who potentially have left. So with former employees, they would have to give them notice that they're no longer subject to this non-compete. So not only is it sort of prospective that what you can't do going forward, but it's retrospective in that, you know, you're going to have to give some notice and say that you're no longer limited by a non-compete that you may have signed with us. Is this something that had been in the works or been discussed for a while? Because I know as a layman, this was not something, this just, I saw an article one day and I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Or like, did this kind of come out of nowhere or had it been in the pipeline? So I would say, I think there's been a lot of discontent with non-competes. You hear a lot of stories about companies that are subjecting their low-wage workers to these non-competes and how unfair it seems and how onerous it can be. Um, I think about 18 months ago, President Biden issued an executive order asking the FTC 
to use its rulemaking authority to start exploring how to limit unfair non-competes and sort of this onerous use of non-competes. I'm not sure that even Biden had in mind the broad spectrum or uh, the sort of the broad brush with which the FTC was going to propose this rule. Um, but I think there's been a brewing discontent with non-competes for a while, right, that you then see come out in this executive order. And then the FTC, in my opinion, even taking it a step further. And I should say what's really interesting, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things about the proposed rule, um, is that it's a ban on de facto non-competes. So not only on a non-compete clause, but on anything that could function as a non-compete clause, that is anything that could be a barrier to a worker going to work in a competing environment, right? So if I had a worker sign a really broad non-disclosure agreement, so that really anything that they've, they've learned in the job where they're working now um, is subject to this non-disclosure agreement, then it might be that they can't really go to work for a competitor because they would have to use some of that information, right? And that might be covered under this ban as well. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty right now among employers. Again, we're a ways off. It still has, you know, it has to go through the comments period. And then the FTC has to decide if it wants to use the rule as it is, or if it wants to make changes to it, if it is going to put it into place. But some uncertainty now and, and some trepidation about how how far reaching this is going to be. My next question was kind of how does this rulemaking process work? You mentioned comments like, is this something that they just have to put out? It sits for a while. They wait to to get feedback and then maybe they adjust or leave it alone. Is there more to it? Do you know, how does it work? Sure. Yeah. So right now they're in the comments period. So they've proposed the rule and it's open for comments. And if you go to their webpage, you can see and you can put comments in. Right. So they're looking for comments from individuals, also comments from industry. You can imagine they're going to get a lot of comments. They, um, so they'll do that. They'll leave that open for 60 days. That I think closes on March 10th. After the comment period has closed, they can do a couple of things. So they can reopen the comment period. So they can say, we want to hear more. They can issue a new proposed rule to say, look, we've gone through, we've, we've listened to the comments, we have you know, alternatives. Um, they can terminate the rulemaking and decide that they're not really going to do anything. Or they can move on to this final rule and then they would publish it. And I think that it would take effect within like 180 days of publication or something like that. So they have lots of options and they've actually talked about some alternatives to the proposed rules so that are a little bit less drastic. So they've said things, and I think they're actually even soliciting comments on the alternatives as well to say things like a categorical ban on non-competes for some workers. So maybe workers below a certain wage level. I think Oregon has one below $100,000, right? Make, so making $100,000 a year. And then a rebuttable presumption of unlawfulness for other workers. So we're going to assume that they're unlawful for people who make over $100,000, but that can be rebutted by the employer if they can show a reason that it's really important to have a non-compete in place for this particular employee, right? Um, they've also talked about, you know, a categorical ban for some workers, some low-wage workers, and then no effect on other workers. So we're going to assume that it's lawful and go through sort of the regular process for non-competes. Or a rebuttable presumption of unlawfulness for all workers. So we assume it's unlawful, but even if you're a low-wage worker, if the employer can show circumstances that would make sense for a non-compete, then they would be allowed to use a non-compete. So alternatives out there that are less drastic, I think, than than the rule, um, than the proposed rule. And so it'll be interesting sort of to see how this develops. Are there certain industries, areas where we have heard the most shrieking about this that have 
announced that their unhappiness with what is proposed the most or do most places are they kind of taking a wait and see and you know looking for loopholes like has there been a lot of pushback that you have heard I don't know that I've heard the pushback um, or that, you know, particularly from certain industries. Um, but I would say that from the attorneys that I've been talking to, they're sort of taking a wait and see attitude with their clients to say, take a deep breath. We've still got a long way to go in the rulemaking process. They're really reinforcing with them to be precise in making a non-compete. And so when you make a non-compete, right? You really want to think about a couple of things because this is what a court's going to look at. They're going to look at, does the employer have a legitimate interest in putting this non-compete into place? So what are you afraid of? Is it a trade secret thing, confidential information, a customer list? What are you worried about if this particular employee leaves and goes to a competitor? Um, and then if there is a legitimate interest, is the non-compete reasonable, right? So it, have you put it in place for a reasonable amount of time? And so I would say in the vast majority of cases, I mean, really, we're looking at a year or less is held to be reasonable. Anywhere above three years is almost, you know, immediately unreasonable. But is it in place for a reasonable amount of time, given your concerns? And is it in place in a reasonable geographic scope? Are you putting a worldwide ban on an employee when you're a regional company, right? That doesn't make any sense. And that's not fair. Um, so those are the types of things that they're just really encouraging their employees or their clients who are employers to take a look at and to really be thinking about. And they should be doing that anyway. But I think from, from the attorneys working in the industry, they're concerned, but they're also taking that sort of wait and see, you know, let's take this one step at a time approach. We need to take a break. We will have more with Natalie Peterson right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. And we're back on KYW News Radio In-Depth, continuing our conversation with Natalie Peterson of Drexel's LeBeau College of Business, our focus, the FTC and non-competes. Let's say that the rule as it's proposed now goes in. What are some things you think we could see? Like, who would really benefit from this? Is this something where we would notice kind of a pivot right away, or would it be just kind of something that slowly we start to notice things. Yeah. So the FTC has projected that if the rule goes into place, it would generate extra job opportunities for as many as 30 million workers and to increase wages by $300 billion. And the reason that they say that is because we know that a lot of wage growth comes from the opportunity to move from employer to employer, right? Either the opportunity to take a higher paying job or the opportunity to tell your employer, your current employer, that you have an offer for a higher paying job. If you have a non-compete, you don't necessarily have that latitude, right? And so the FTC thinks that there will be much more opportunity for employees to see that wage growth if they have the opportunity to do that. That's been borne out from some, by some studies. So we've had some natural experiments um, in states that have sort of changed their non-compete rules. I think Oregon was one where they looked at it and they said, basically, once they got rid of non-competes for lower wage workers, their mobility increased. And I think their wages immediately almost jumped by about 3% in the very short term. And then I think eventually it was something like 5%. So having that ability to move I think it's going to be something that would happen in both the short term and the long term to affect wages. Um, and the FTC is really optimistic about that. And it's one of sort of the driving forces. Um, they also talk about increased innovation and entrepreneurship, right? Because 
you're not only barred from going to work for a competing company, you're barred from starting your own competing company under many non-competes, right? And so for an employee to have the ability or a worker to have the ability to say, you know, I've been working in this industry for a while. I have some really good innovative ideas that I would like to branch out on my own and pursue, but I can't do that because I'm hindered by this non-compete. I'm not allowed to do this. So they think that that, that it would also sort of benefit consumers by increasing this entrepreneurship and the variety of products and services potentially available to consumers. Um, and then I think a really interesting one and not one that I think one that's not talked about as often is that they think it will have an even greater effect for women and people of color because it tends to be that for a couple of reasons that non-competes tend to be or the effect of tends to be more harsh for women and people of color. Studies have shown that women and people of color are less likely to negotiate non-competes. So when it, when they're asked to sign one, they're more likely to just sign one rather than trying to negotiate the terms of it. So they're more likely to be bound by potentially broader non-competes. And then another reason is that women and people of color tend to be less likely to push the envelope and potentially violate a non-compete and then say, you know what, let my employer come after me if they want to, but I'm going to take this job opportunity. We don't see that as often as we do with other counterparts in the workplace. Um, and so for that reason, that can depress wages for people in those groups even, even more so than for every worker. So I thought that was sort of an interesting effect that we might see as well that the FCC, uh, you know, could be looking at. Where does rulemaking end and lawmaking begin? And what I mean by that is we talk, you talked about kind of how the FTC works and, and what their, their role is, but if Congress wanted to be proactive in this space and they did something that would Bigfoot this rule one way or another, does does what Congress does overtake the FTC rule? Like if there was kind of overlap here, who has the jurisdiction? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. So the FTC gets its authority to act from Congress. So in the Federal, Federal Trade Commission's Act, it was Congress um, delegated authority to the FTC to act, particularly on issues of unfair competition. Um, so they have the ability to make these types of rules. Um, at the same time, if they passed a, a law, or I'm sorry, a rule that um, Congress disagreed with, the House and the Senate could pass a resolution of disapproval um, to say that they don't agree with this current rule, and then the president would sign it. But I, that would be unlikely to happen given the administration. Um, another thing that we might see happen, which we've seen happen more recently and more frequently with the Supreme Court, and I don't want to get too legal here, but it's something called the major questions doctrine. So on issues of what they call vast economic or political significance, agencies like the FTC can't regulate those issues unless they have clear authorization from Congress. So it has to be supported by express statutory language. And so some people, they're expecting a lot of litigation on this. And, and one of the ways is to say, well, yeah, Congress said you get to regulate unfair competition, but it's not clear that these non-competes are always unfair competition. And so how do you have the authority to issue a broad ban like this? So that would be another way. Um, I think we saw the Supreme Court do that in um, thwarting the CDC had the nationwide moratorium on evictions um, of tenants who live in counties experiencing high levels of COVID at one point. And the, the Supreme Court said that that under this major questions doctrine was going above and beyond their rulemaking authority. So it may be 
and it, we will certainly see pushback that the FTC has gone too far, that they don't have the authority to do this, that this is too much. And this is or, or should be in the arena of Congress. Right. And this is more lawmaking um, and, and the rulemaking is pushing it too far because of these vast, really the vast economic uh, consequences that the FTC cites as reasons for wanting to put the rule in place, that that would be a way to push back against it. Then my next question was, you know, this Supreme Court does not hesitate to insert itself in situations that maybe in past we haven't seen before. But do you think kind of the makeup of this court, their aggressiveness in stepping in, do you think that could loom over this? And when it's all said and done, we see this rule not quite as broad, watered down a little bit with the thought process of maybe it makes it easier to stand? Or do you think they'll go for the full swing of the bat here and let it fall where they may? I mean, I don't know what they will do. I can say it has to be in the back of their minds, right, that this major questions doctrine could be an issue for them if they get to, you know, to the Supreme Court. I think litigation is already being threatened by a lot of different groups. So they know that FTC is aware that there's going to be a lot of pushback here. Um, So I think that that would give some impetus potentially for some compromise in the rulemaking process. Um, But I mean, I really sort of remains to be seen how far they're willing to push it to see, you know, maybe they try and see what happens and then at worst end up with a different rule that's more of a compromise. Um, I'm not sure at what point the threat of what the Supreme Court will do would be a deterrent or or if it just acts as a motivator to compromise later. I don't know. You know, I can't I can't predict that. But I'm certain that it's, it's something that's been thought about and discussed extensively. And you mentioned the comments period. And I think you said 180 days. So this is something by the end of the calendar year, we this should be in place one way or another. I mean, again, I think it depends if they decide to extend the comments period, if they decide to propose a different rule, right, that they decide to go with a compromise. So, I mean, potentially, I guess, under the process, it could be, but it really depends if it's more of a straight shot and they just say, all right, we've heard the comments. Now we're going to, you know, decide to go with this rule and publish that. And it has to be in place within a certain time frame or if they decide to explore things more. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.